0: Christian Weatherford.
1: And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics.
0: We are not zoological experts, but we try our hardest to bring the most accurate and hard-hitting information that we can. (laughs) Hard-hitting? That's an interesting
1: addition. (laughs) I don't know, some of my stuff hits pretty hard. Yeah. It slaps. Mm -hmm, It does. mm -hmm. It's going to reach through your headphones and... Hit I don't wanna invoke that energy. <laughs> you will receive no pain whatsoever from this
0: podcast.
1: <laughs> That's our tagline, an entirely painless experience.
0: That's the goal, right?
1: Yeah. This is our first episode recording together since the Max Fun Drive. It is. So we'd just like to say thank you for everyone who took part in that. It went great. It did. We were really thrilled to hear from everybody and thankful for everybody's support. We couldn't do it without you.
0: And bonus it was fun it was
1: it was the maximum amount of fun one might even (laughs) describe it as uh so here's to another great year of podcasting starting with this one in which it is my turn to go first
0: so what do you bring us today ellen
1: this week i'm talking about the brown pelican okay this is our first pelican brought to this podcast Uh, surprising maybe, because we do live pretty close to pelican territory.
0: (laughs) That does answer my first question. More than one pelican? Oh
1: yeah, there's quite a few (laughs) pelicans.
0: Uh,
1: this one, the species name is Pelicanus occidentalis. Oh. And this species was submitted by Griffin Jones, thank you Griffin, Mm -hmm. and Vienna Sterling. And that was also a very, very long time ago, but I think Vienna is still listening and we'll hear this (laughs) sorry for taking forever to get to it but (laughs) here's a pelican (laughs) and i'm getting my information from the cornell lab of ornithology allaboutbirds.org as well as smithsonian's national zoo the florida fish and wildlife conservation commission and a really good uh, blog post from science of birds which is Written by friend of the show, former guest, Ivan Philipson, Excellent. Uh, who is a, a scientist who studies birds and just had a, a wealth of information, including something, an interesting quote I'm going to pull in a little bit. So um, I was very excited to see his name come up in my sources because I was like, that's, that's Ivan. I've talked to him. <laughs> So if you're unfamiliar with the brown pelican, they are on average three to five feet long, which is one to one and a half meters, which as with a lot of birds, that's not the impressive stat. Mm -mm. I know what you want to hear. You Mm want to hear the wingspan. Yes. Six and a half feet Nice. Or two meters. So, you know, quite a wide wingspan, which I think is something you see with a lot of seabirds, right? Birds that spend a lot of time gliding and soaring over the sea. You'll see them have these wide wingspans. Mm -hmm. But that's actually the smallest pelican. Really? They are the smallest species of pelican. There are eight extant species of pelican. The largest pelicans are Dalmatian pelicans, which are found in Asia and Southern Europe. And they can have a wingspan of up to... What do you think? What do you think is the max wingspan for a pelican? 10 feet. 10 feet? Yeah. Go bigger.
0: nuh
1: Yeah. 11 and a half feet. Okay, not so t- three and a half meters. It's still pretty big <laughs> for a pelican. No, I meant like,
0: oh, I was pretty close.
1: You were, Yeah, you weren't that far off. That's true. Um, so yeah, they're huge. They're just massive birds. So the brown pelican is found along coasts of most of the Americas. Okay. So as a group, pelicans are most closely related to other wading birds like the hammer cop and shoe bill, which we talked about a long time ago on this show. Oh, yes. You can really see the resemblance to the shoe there because they have like a funky sort of bill situation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One's more intimidating, though.
1: Yeah. One is a lot s- scarier than the other. Uh, but more distantly they're related to things like herons and spoonbills which you can really see the resemblance in the way that the pelican's neck folds back in like an S shape it's like if you've ever seen them flying it's like their bill is like too heavy for them to just like hold out so they have to kind of rest their head back on like their shoulders well
0: when you said that it evoked that picture of a pelican pushing its neck through its... I'm gonna get oh, into okay. that Never I'm mind. gonna get into it so that that was the cause of my grimace oh okay yeah but that S <laughs> (laughs) Okay. But
1: I feel like that to me is like, okay, I can see the resemblance to like herons and other things like that. Okay. So, to get in my ratings for the brown pelican, to start off with effectiveness, which is physical adaptations, things built into the animal's body that let them do a good job of accomplishing their goals and living their best life, I'm giving (laughs) the brown pelican an eight out of 10. Pretty good. So, first of all, the most distinct feature of the pelican is their signature pouched bill. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yes.
0: I was curious if there was some sort of weird name for this.
1: There is. Don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> it is the gular Pouch. Uh. So pelicans have just massive bills in general. Uh, the longest recorded bill of any bird in the entire world belonged to an Australian pelican oh. that had a bill of 20 inches or 50 centimeters long mm. so massive massive bill so the bill is long straight narrow and it kind of ends with this hook shape and um the hook is good for helping them catch fish because that's what they eat and then their lower jaw is lined on the bottom with this really thin loose baggy skin that just kind of hangs below their bill this is the ghouler pouch <laughs> mm-hmm so, in addition to the pouch, their jawbones are surprisingly flexible. Like, they're kind of bendy. So, this is where that quote from Ivan Philipson comes in. Ivan wrote, more than once, I've come across a brown pelican skull on a remote beach in Baja, California, Mexico. Holding the skull in my hands, I could bend each half of the mandible like the wood of a sapling tree, like a bow. It oh. was really cool. So, you can just kind of flex... The bones are... They got bendy bones. I like that. (laughs) I like wiggly bones. That's good. So this is helpful because the pouch can unfold to hold up to three gallons of water and whatever else was in the water. So fish is what they're going for. Uh, Which reminds me a lot of actually the humpback whale's Mm -hmm. throat. Mm -hmm. You talked about this in the humpback whale episode, right? Yeah. How they have that throat that kind of like accordions out. Right.
0: They got those big ridges that you can really see that expansion happen.
1: Yeah. It actually also kind of reminds me of those horrible shirts from the 90s that like had this sort of crinkly texture to them. So they would be really, really tiny on the hanger, but then they would stretch out when you put them on. You have no idea what I'm talking about, but I promise a lot of people listening are probably like, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So the ghouler pouch serves the bird in a lot of ways. First of all, probably the most obvious is that it helps them catch more fish at a time Mm -hmm. than if they were just using their bill. Uh, So it's kind of like using a fishing net instead of a hook and lure, right? If you're using a fishing hook, you're probably only gonna be catching one fish at a time. Sure. But if you have a net, you can scoop up a whole bunch of them and get a bunch at once. There is a common misconception that the pelican stores fish in its pouch for later. That is not the case. That is not what they do. That would be a huge liability if they did that, right? <laughs> like fish do not like being in there. They're gonna try to get out. <laughs> see,
0: see Finding Nemo.
1: Yes, like, that is not... <laughs> I mean, in that case, the pelican was trying to get the fish somewhere else. It wasn't trying to eat the fish.
0: Well, the first pelican was.
1: Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yet another. Finding Nemo. Inaccuracy. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's not what they do. They just catch the fish, and then the pelican dumps all of the water from their pouch, and then they just swallow the fish that are left.
0: How do they dump it without they losing just kinda, fish?
1: They either kind of, like push the water out like they can kind of like contract their like throat to push the water out they just tilt their head to the side oh, okay like dump dump it out it's not that big a deal i was kind
0: of hoping it would look funny or something like, it probably does like it I mean, shoots a it. stream of water or something
1: <laughs> in pokemon they do i mean. <laughs> Um, So yeah, they're they're not like carrying the fish around. There are some really cool pictures of like, if a photographer is really fast, Mm -hmm. they might be able to get a picture of the pelican before it has dumped the water. And then you can see, you'll get like this sort of translucent effect effect where you can see Uh, like the sort of silhouette of the fish inside of the pouch. I think it's cool. Have you ever seen pictures like that? No. Like uh, if the light source is on the other side of the penguin, you can see through the pouch and see that there's a fish in there. Pelican. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes. And you can see. What did I say? You said penguin. Penguin.
0: (laughs) I love transparent
1: penguins.
0: (laughs) I hope that's what you said because you'll be able to call me out on this when you get it.
1: Probably going to make this mistake so many times because the names are way too similar. But another way that the ghouler pouch serves is as a heat sink.
0: Okay, we've seen this a couple times.
1: Yeah, so the network of blood vessels that line the sort of paper-thin skin of the pouch allow the blood flowing through the bill to lose heat to the surrounding air, because Mm -hmm. that skin is so thin. So pelicans will even flutter their ghouler pouch.
0: (laughs) That's way too eloquent of a word.
1: (laughs) what everyone calls it fluttering and it is, it, they, they kind of shake it out like they kind of like shake their body to sort of fan out the the ghouler pa- it is kind of like it's similar to like fanning yourself you know yeah i'm thinking of like sitting in church on a hot su- like summer day and fanning
0: this needs a different word though for the pelican <laughs> i'm thinking wample slap
1: oh dear yeah yeah <laughs> Tonally, I guess that's more appropriate. <laughs> Let them have fluttering. Okay. Let them flutter their ghoul pouch. <laughs> Let them have this. Okay. So this is where I wanted to talk about that viral sort of post that you're talking about. Yes. There was a viral... I don't remember where it started. I think it was on Twitter. But it was this picture of pelicans where you can see the outline of their neck that's poking up into the bottom of of their pouch Mm -hmm. and the post said erroneously that they push their spine out of their throat to cool off Uh, that's not what's happening it just kind of looks like that Mm -hmm. because what's really happening is that they're just kind of leaning back and yawning and the outside of their neck is pressing up against the bottom of their pouch right so what you're seeing what kind of looks like maybe like Neck muscles or bones, or something like that. It's really just kind of like the inner linings and networks of the inside of their throat Mm. that's just being pushed. By their neck.
0: Okay, I was think- just
1: yawning. It's not that big a deal. I
0: was thinking maybe their neck is just very conforming to the underlying bone structure, and that it's just normally hidden by feathers. But in that situation, you don't get that benefit.
1: <laughs> no, it's just it's just that the neck is just kind of pushing up against the bottom of the pouch, mm. and because of how loose and baggy the bottom of the pouch is, it contours to the shape of the neck. So, like, you're just getting an impression of the outline of the neck. That's all it is. They're just yawning. It's not that serious. (laughs) It's not that gross, you know? Okay, it looks gross. It doesn't look great, but it's not as gross as they made it seem. Sure. While we're on the topic of the pouch, I am actually giving a slight deduction. Okay. Because the pouch skin is very thin, and it is very prone to tearing.
0: I was going to say, three gallons of water is pretty heavy. It's
1: heavy, right? But... They can tear their skin, whether it is by like sharp spines or bones, right? Like if they're eating fish, if they got fish in there, fish might be thrashing around. They might have sharp pointy bits on them. But also increasingly over time, we're seeing more fishing gear and marine debris that they're scooping up in their pouch and getting injured on. Okay. So yeah, you'll see a lot of like photos or articles or something of pelicans that have torn their pouch wide open whether it's the result of like a natural sort of fishing like maybe they were just hunting prey and whatever prey they scooped up sliced through their bill or they sliced it up on fishing gear or something it is kind of a liability
0: so when that happens does it heal back closed
1: it doesn't seem like it okay like it doesn't seem like it really can Because usually, like, every article that I found about this happening, the bird was taken into, like, a a rehabilitation center, and they had to do surgery on it. So they would, like, stitch up the bill and heal it surgically. Oh,
0: so it could. It just needs to be stitched up.
1: I mean, I guess so, but I don't think there's any way that could happen naturally. Oh, of course not, no. If it's, like, a really wide cut, you know, like, I don't think that's going to heal naturally. I think the bird's just going to starve at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a high-risk asset to have. Mm -hmm. So that is why I gave them a slight deduction for that. What they do have is they're kind of lined with bubble wrap beneath their skin along their underside. So like their Mm -hmm. chest area mostly uh, is a network of small inflatable air sacs that keep them afloat. They're hooked up to their respiratory system and they can to an extent they can sort of control the inflation and deflation of these like air sacs throughout the bottom side of their body. And this helps them float in the water.
0: That sounds like breathing with more steps.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think it's for their like lung respiration. Mm-hmm. It's just that's how it's getting air. Like sure. the, the, the sacs are filling up with air like through the respiratory system, but these air sacs are for buoyancy. they okay. keep the pelican floating on top of the water. They also act as basically a, a network of tiny airbags hmm. that protect them when they crash into the water at high speeds. Oh which they do quite frequently. I'll explain that in just a moment. On purpose? <laughs> yes, on purpose. Okay. It's, an imp- it's, an, it's a thing that they do, <laughs> that they have fun with. And the final sort of thing I want to talk about for their physical adaptations is that when you look at a brown pelican's bill, uh, it doesn't appear to have nostrils. So the weird thing is that they have bony nostrils, but they're sealed off. So from the outside, they're like completely covered up by the bill. Hmm. So there's nothing there's nothing connecting the nostrils to the outside. The reason it's like this is so that when they crash into the water at high speeds, salt water doesn't get jammed up into their nasal cavity. Okay. There's kind of a trade-off here. So f- the negative is that they can't breathe or smell through their nostrils. And it mm-hmm. seems like you'd want to do that. Like breathing seems important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they just have to breathe through their mouths all the time. And they also can't smell uh, that doesn't seem to really hinder them too much, though. I mean, they have great eyesight, and they their, their pouch is also sensitive, so they have pretty good, like, mechanoreception. I was going to
0: say, what, what are they going to smell?
1: And I mean, since they're spending so much time uh, around sort of docks and harbors and places where there's going to be a lot of dead, rotting fish, maybe that's for the better that right? they can't smell. <laughs> <laughs> but... They do a little a little trade off here. So instead, they have a salt gland in their nasal cavity that extracts salt from their blood, and it helps kind of like cleanse their blood of high salt content.
0: I know where this is going.
1: Do you? You more (laughs) than I do. I wasn't going anywhere with that. This is a cool fact.
0: Uh, That was that's very similar to the marine iguana
1: oh it sure <laughs> is isn't it
0: <laughs> translates into snot launches
1: see they don't have anything to launch snot out of is oh, the thing
0: wait well where's the, it?
1: the nostrils don't go anywhere
0: so their salt gland is where
1: it's in like the bony like nasal cavity
0: where's the salt going then I don't know. Perhaps an update for next time.
1: So I I wanted to to share where I heard this from. This is from a really cool YouTube video. uh, And that was by the Whitmer Lab at Ohio University. And the video is called Dissecting with Emily. Do pelicans have nostrils, nasal salt glands? And they look at pelican skulls and they show you where the bony nostril is, like where their nostrils would be if they opened up to the outside. And then they show you a bill where you can Mm -hmm, see that 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 hole is completely completely closed up and they explain like they show a really cool yeah. like x-ray where they show you where all the little like veins and stuff are inside of the pelican skull don't worry it's called dissecting with emily they don't do a dissection in the video it's not gross they show some skulls but that's it
0: emily is not the pelican right? no <laughs> okay, okay.
1: <laughs> no emily is the student okay uh, at the whitmer lab who is explaining how this pelican skull figures into her her research work okay so, I just thought that was interesting. Yes. Like, it's a little trade off they make. They can't, you know, take advantage of some of the normal functions of nostrils, but they've kind of repurposed them to suit their like extremely marine lifestyle because they literally never have access to fresh water. It's all salt water all the time. So, they have these sort of glands in their nostrils. In the video, they mentioned that they're like four times better than their kidneys at processing, like getting the salt out of the blood.
0: Oh, that's good. I have a guess as to where the salt is going. Let's hear it post-nasal drip
1: ew oh man that if, sucks. They,
0: if they don't have nostrils <laughs> that's the only other way right yes I, I mean I'm, I'm equating it to human physiology
1: yeah i don't know maybe they're like expelling it through their mouth somehow yeah yeah that i didn't that i wasn't able to find that's disgusting thank you christian <laughs> um <laughs> So that brings us to ingenuity for the brown pelican, which if this is your first time listening to this podcast, this is behavioral adaptations, things the animal is doing to solve problems or or thrive in their environment. I'm also giving the brown pelican an 8 out of 10 for ingenuity. Okay. First of all, the thing that I mentioned earlier about them crashing into water at high speeds, this is a thing that they do that's special brown pelicans and their their sister species the peruvian pelicans which are like very very similar to them they have this uniquely dramatic style of hunting for fish that is not shared by the other pelicans they fly Up to a maximum height of like 70 feet up in the air. And then when they see fish below the surface, because I mentioned they can see really, really well, they have great eyesight, they nosedive into the water. You're nodding like you're aware of this, like you've seen them do this. I
0: think so, yeah. I'm
1: pretty sure we have both seen them do this together. We see them do this at the beach.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It kind of looks like they make make a W shape almost. They do. Yes, they do. Okay,
1: so they nosedive into the water, and then there are a few different special maneuvers that they do when they're bracing for impact with the water. So first of all, they cover their eyes with a transparent nictitating membrane, which we've talked about a few times. It's this little, like, secret eyelid that Mm -hmm. just, like, closes up real quick to keep salt out of their eyeballs. And that's how they don't go blind when they slam into the water at these high speeds. They also um, fold their wings back into, like you mentioned, like, at first it looks like a W shape. But right at the last second when they're about to hit the water, they actually shoot their wings all the way fully behind them. Like they're fully naruto running directly oh, into the water like lined up with their back so that it makes this sort of like arrow shape into the water mm. to to reduce drag into the water but also to not like snap their wing bones yes it is it is a complete naruto run directly into the water <laughs> um but another thing that they do is that every single time they always twist their body to the left it's always to the left mm. and there's a specific reason for that it is because their esophagus and trachea lays along the right side of their neck.
0: Oh. So
1: they're leaning in such a way that the side of their neck that does not contain all of their essential eating and breathing tubes is not the one slamming directly into the water. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so you would think that given this dramatic dive they would swim around under the water to like snap up fish below like how anhingas do it. Yeah. Like anhingas like dive into the water and then they kind of chill out down there for a while and see what they can grab. But not pelicans. They actually, while they're, like, about to slam into the water, they basically, like, slam the brakes. So they try to slow themselves down as much as they can, and then they, like, inflate those air sacs so that they're trying to basically slow down as much as they can. And they don't actually really go beneath the water. Like, if they do go underwater, it's not very much, and they just stay at the surface. So it's just kind of like this one giant like dive bomb mm-hmm. and then they're like, Hope I got something. Mm-hmm,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, yes.
1: Cause I think what they're trying to do is like sneak up on the fish, basically. Like they don't want the fish to know that they're there sure. until it's too late.
0: So it's you know, dive in, grab fish, expel water, then fly off?
1: Well then they'll just kind of float on the water for a little while and then they might fly away if they want okay. to do it again because they've probably got what they wanted from that.
0: Okay, so that makes more sense, because I think something in media that's portrayed sometimes is a pelican swooping down, getting a mouthful of water, and then flying off with it.
1: No, it's so
0: heavy! I was <laughs> yeah, like, there's no way.
1: Like, like the three <laughs> gallons of water would weigh them down, they wouldn't be able to take off.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes sense.
1: You know, like, they wouldn't be able to take off with that much water in their in their pouch. So, so no, they don't do that. Okay. Um, It's kind of like, they're, they, they act like they're gonna go underwater, and then at the last 2nd like, they're like, wait, 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 I changed my mind, I changed my mind. <laughs> they don't go under other pelicans just hang out at the surface and they just kind of like snap up what they can mm-hmm. so they're the only ones that do this sort of like dive bomb technique which is really cool to watch like we've seen them do this a lot at the beaches here it's really cool to see them do it in saint pete and tampa like in the in the tampa bay area tons of pelicans out there and you can mm-hmm. just watch them all day long doing these really graceful like it is a beautiful sort of maneuver they're so good mm-hmm. at it So this is a great way of sneaking up on unsuspecting prey. However, it is the exact opposite of sneaky. This is not a stealthy maneuver at all. It causes a huge splash. There's lots of noise and movement, which is basically like, it's like yelling into a megaphone, like, hey, hey, everybody, free food, free fish (laughs) in this big wet grocery bag. (laughs) All you got to do is get it out of this bird's mouth. And there is fish in there for you. So this puts pelicans at a huge risk of kleptoparasitism oh. in which other predators steal their prey directly from them like after they've already successfully hunted they have the prey they're ready to eat it and another predator snatches it away from them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they are often the victims of theft by gulls terns, larger pelicans so white pelicans will steal prey from brown pelicans uh or even fish Other fish will steal fish from pelicans. (laughs) Uh, In September of 2021, Catherine E. Doyle and Cameron McGregor published in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment an observation titled Kleptoparasitism Between Bonefish and Pelicans, in which a group of bonefish ambushed brown pelicans and stole prey directly from their bill. Hmm. Like out of their bill. They ganged up on the pelicans and like bullied them. And took their lunch money, like literally took their lunch money. (laughs) (laughs) So the authors wrote, the observed stealing behavior appears to be an energetically inexpensive way for bonefish to obtain food, given that the pelican hosts tolerate the presence of the kleptoparasites and surrender their prey without resistance. So the pelicans folded like a lawn chair, just immediately were like, here you go. You can have it, I guess. Like, they put up no fight.
0: I wonder if that, like, signifies some awareness of how fragile the, the bill pouch is.
1: That's exactly what I was thinking. Because I was thinking it is probably more energetically risky to them. Sure. Because they know that they're pretty good hunters. It's it's not going to be that difficult for them to just get more fish. Mm-hmm. And they know that if they do try to put up a fight against, like, whoever's trying to come get their fish, they could suffer injuries to their you know, pouch that will kill them. Right. So to them, it probably is more energetically worth their time to just give up and, you know, not fight mm-hmm. because it's more worth it to them to just do another dive and get more fish. So it's, it's interesting. They, they're they kind of like a, like a pacifist. Uh, I mean, not to other pelicans <laughs> or not to other birds. They'll, they'll steal prey from other birds too, but uh, they apparently don't put up too much of a fight when you try to take something from them.
0: Now the, the dive bombing thing, you know, you talked about how it attracts the thieves mm-hmm. of the ocean. Yeah. Wouldn't that also ring a more direct dinner bell for things like sharks that will just kind of grab them?
1: I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't really see a lot of instances of pelicans okay. being eaten by sharks necessarily. I think they spend enough time in the air That I don't think they're kind of, like, item number one on the agenda. They're also probably really difficult to eat because of their extremely long, bony parts. Mm. You know? Like, because of how long and and awkwardly shaped their bills are, they're probably kind of difficult to eat. Mm. I would think.
0: Maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's also sharks that eat through turtle shells, so...
1: I don't know. I feel like there's just more appealing stuff out there for sure yeah. to eat. I didn't see it being like a huge deal for pelicans. So the last thing I wanted to say about their ingenuity is that they are masters of physics. Okay. Pelicans fly close to the surface of the water. We've seen them do this, mm-hmm. where, you know, yes, they may fly up high when they're getting ready for a dive, but they spend a lot of time gliding really close to this to the surface of oh, the water. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've seen them do this a lot, yeah, right? yeah. So the reason they do this is because they're taking advantage of an aerodynamic principle called the ground effect. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. This is really interesting. Apparently, when you're talking about either a bird or an aircraft, a wing generates lift by directing air underneath it. And then due to Newton's third law, the downward force of redirecting the air exerts an equal and opposite upward force against the wing that lifts the wing up into the air. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the general principle of lift. Uh, However, around the tips of the wings, air curls around in a little loop. It creates what's called a wingtip vortex, Mm -hmm. where the air, instead of just flowing straight down below the wing, because this is the tip of the wing, there's no wing left for it to go beneath, it curls around and then flows downward onto the top of the wing. So it ends up pushing the wing down and canceling out a little bit of that lift. Hmm. So usually when you're just flying through the air, it's not enough to fully cancel out the lift, it's just you're getting a little bit of that downward force from your wing tip vortices. However, when the wings are close enough to a flat surface like the ground or water, so like within the wingspan of the pelican to the water. So that's why they fly super close. So when the wings are that close to a flat surface, the surface blocks the flow of the air so that it can't loop around the wingtip like that it disrupts the vortex. So then the air isn't then circling around to push down on the wing. Lift isn't being canceled out. And then you get this cushioning effect where all you're getting is lift. Hmm. So it helps the bird just effortlessly glide. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like using this like... Legitimate, like, principle of aerodynamics, to like effortlessly just fly and fly and fly, uh, without really having to like flap their wings very often or anything. It's a, it's a great energy saving maneuver. Um, there are some other ways that they actually take advantage of aerodynamic principles. Uh, they ride thermals. To gain height when they're ready to, you know, do a dive or something like that. So they can ride these upward drafts of wind. But they also... So you've seen them fly in flocks, right? Yeah. These are really social, gregarious birds. They often fly in big groups. And when we've seen them flying, you'll usually see them flying in single file. Think about times when we've seen pelicans flying across the beach. And you'll see this kind of single file line of a whole bunch of them. When the first pelican flaps its wings, it creates an updraft that the next bird behind it rides. Huh. Yeah. So they're actually like using their wings to like boost the person behind them. It's really cool.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. <laughs>
1: So it's all of this I got from a, an article in Bay Nature magazine that's titled, Why do pelicans fly so low? And that was written by Michael Ellis on June 12th of 2012. Mm. So uh, very, very interesting. I watched a lot of YouTube videos explaining what lift is yeah. <laughs> to try to understand this concept. Mm-hmm. So I hope that made some sense. Uh, it it makes more sense to pelicans than it does to me, obviously. You
0: can see those uh, vortex Air movement's real good when you see a plane or something fly through, like, smoke or something. Oh, true. Yeah,
1: yeah you can see how it kind of, like, curls around yeah. around the tip of the wing. Yeah. Mm. So that's what, what they're taking advantage of, is, is not having those vortices when they fly close to the water. Yeah. Very interesting, I thought. Mm. This brings us to aesthetics uh, for the brown pelican. I'm giving them a 7 out of 10. Uh, Cornell Lab's website describes them as a, quote, comically elegant bird, which... that feels backhanded doesn't it that feels like (laughs) that feels like they couldn't decide whether they wanted to like roast them or like hype them up
0: they're beautiful but funny
1: so i think the brown pelican is hands down by far the prettiest pelican. So the 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 white pelicans are the ones with the soulless void eyes. Oh. You know what I'm talking about? They have those just like black orb eyes. Like the, the, the put baby in pelican mouth. Like that is, is okay. a, one of the white pelicans. I think that one was an Australian pelican. Uh, yeah, they all... I don't like their energy. It's very... Menacing.
0: The one that tried to eat a capybara.
1: (laughs) That one, yeah. That is one thing. They're always like putting their bills (laughs) on stuff that clearly they don't intend to eat them because they couldn't possibly. They're just (laughs) always like putting their bills on stuff. I saw the funniest picture of of a pelican with another pelican just fully within their entire mouth. Like just the pelican's head fully inside of its throat. I did want to give you a heads up about uh, this is a baby pelican alert. And if you could just look at this photo real quick.
0: My expectations are low.
1: You're going to love it. Okay, this is baby brown pelicans.
0: No. (laughs) No. Mm -mm.
1: Look at the babies. (laughs) Mm -mm. they're horrible (laughs) these are not cute baby birds there's a lot of cute baby birds out there and this is not one of them.
0: all birds are like this before they get their feathers oh before they get their
1: feathers okay yeah i mean
0: sure
1: (laughs) um yeah these are ugly (laughs) baby (laughs) pelicans are are not it at all they got the little (laughs) tiny nubby wings that like haven't grown any feathers yet so they just look like little chicken wings don't like it no and you and and they don't have feathers so they look like hairless cats Mm -mm. i know you're into that Mm -mm. so i just wanted to run that by you thanks (laughs) (laughs) so to wrap things up for the brown pelican i'm going to tell you a little conservation story about the brown pelican from the 1940s through the 1960s a pesticide called ddt was all the rage. Do you know what DDT stands for? There's no way you know what DDT stands for.
0: I can make something up.
1: Okay, go for it. What does DDT stand for? Let's hear it.
0: Um, donuts. Mm-hmm. Don't track.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. That's the craziest thing. Um, I actually wrote down what it's called. And it's it looks like a scary word until you realize it's all just like chemical stuff. I think I can say it. Okay. I think I can pronounce it. I'm going to try it. Dichloro, diphenyl, trichloroethane.
0: Those are words, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That is just to let you know, you will never need to know what DDT stands for. Why is that? Uh because it doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> because was, it's banned. Now. Yeah, I was
0: <laughs> setting up the yeah so it was
1: originally developed to kill mosquitoes in an attempt to protect soldiers from diseases like malaria uh, when they were deployed overseas okay but it was also used as an agricultural and even household pesticide uh sherwin-williams even sold a paintable ddt okay that was advertised for household use. You were meant to paint your home and bedroom with DDT. Mm. Um, spoiler alert, don't do that. <laughs> That's very bad so it was everywhere it was highly toxic DDT and its broken down forms would accumulate in fats uh, so it was really really soluble in fat which meant that it became more concentrated at higher levels of food chains yeah so a, a an animal down at the bottom of the food chain might you know absorb some DDT from soils and grasses and stuff and then As predators eat that prey, the DDT dissolves into their fat. As something eats them, the DDT gets concentrated more and more and more so that animals at higher levels of the food chain had much higher concentrations of DDT metabolites Mm -hmm. than at the bottom, which meant that apex predators, like birds of prey, would have these really high concentrations of DDT in their bodies. So the biggest effect of DDT on birds was eggshell thinning. Mm -hmm. Birds would lay eggs that had really thin, fragile shells. And for pelicans, which warm their eggs by standing on them, this meant that the eggs weren't strong enough to support their weight. And they would stand on their eggs to warm them, and the eggs would break underneath them. So this was just like a full-on reproductive collapse for brown pelicans. They were experiencing mass reproductive failure. So populations plummeted. And not just brown pelicans. This happened for a lot of predatory birds, um, mm-hmm. most famously bald eagles. Bald eagles are, I think, probably the most associated with this DDT situation. Also, peregrine falcons and ospreys Mm. um, suffered a lot. All of their numbers dropped drastically. In 1970, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service added brown pelicans to the federal endangered species list. But it wasn't until two years later in 1972 that the Environmental Protection Agency banned the use of DDT completely. After DDT was banned, the brown pelican population steadily climbed back up, and it reached its historic numbers in the 1990s. Perfect. So only about 20 years later, and they got right back to where they were. Uh, in 2009, they were completely removed from the endangered species list and they are now considered of least concern.
0: Yay! So,
1: big, big comeback for the brown pelican. Just goes to show you what environmental protection legislation can do. It mm-hmm. uh, can bring animals back from the brink of extinction, and this is a great conservation success story. We see a lot of them here. Um, I have some personal brown pelican experience uh, as a child. I spent a lot of time with my dad's family in the St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area where <laughs> there's this pier and at the end of the pier. There was all these pelicans. Well, there's pelicans everywhere in mm-hmm. St. Pete. There's pelicans all over the place. And, um, when i was a kid don't do this by the way this is don't don't do this but you could go to the end of the pier and feed the pelicans there was usually people down there you could give them like a dollar and they'd give you this little thing of of fish oh like little bait fish that you could just toss to the penguins and they would eat out of your hand penguins i keep saying penguins (laughs) Toss, (laughs) toss this bait fish to the pelicans yeah and they would eat out of your hand And when I was a kid, my dad was like, do you want to go down to the pier and feed the pelicans? I was like, absolutely, I want to feed the pelicans. So we get down there all the way to the end of the pier, and I realize that feeding the pelicans means handling fish. Oh, yeah. Which I... Hard pass. It's not going to be me. I'm not going to do it. So I bailed. I was like, I no longer want to feed the pelicans. I'm not interested. I Please do not. I do not want this. And the pelicans were very mad at me for doing that (laughs) because they had expected me to feed them. And when I walked away empty handed and had no fish to give them, they were quite angry and they did chase me oh no and i did scream very much
0: (laughs) (laughs) public enemy number one
1: yes (laughs) a menace to the public to me specifically (laughs) so i have uh in fact been chased and attacked by this animal which i think is uh something i can't say for a lot of the animals we talk about on this podcast
0: at least it's one of those animals where you know even if it got you
1: i mean what's it gonna do (laughs) gnaw on me (laughs) nothing
0: bend it's sapling like bones
1: <laughs> <laughs> menacingly <laughs> yeah um i was unharmed <laughs> This like this is why you're not supposed to feed wildlife, by the way. This exact like anecdote is exactly why you're not supposed to do that because mm-hmm. they become habituated, they expect food, when you don't feed them, they chase you for food. And that's exactly why you're not supposed to do that. Yep. Uh so I say this as a cautionary tale.
0: They should develop your story into a dramatized PSA like commercial. Mm,
1: I will not be <laughs> I will not be reenacting that. <laughs> I would love to see the practical effects like shot at an angle and such where it looks like I'm like very tiny and the pelicans are mm-hmm. really huge. So that's the brown pelican.
0: Thanks, honey. You're welcome.
1: Uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network and we'll get to your animal. Are you tired of being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? When you look around a room of people, do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month? Have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person? Us too. She's Alexis B. Preston. She's Ella McLeod. And we host Comfort Creatures, the show where you can't talk about your pets too much. Animal trivia is our love language and dragons are just as real as dinosaurs. Tune in to Comfort Creatures every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Lisa Hannahwalt, And I'm Emily Heller. Wow, Emily, we've been doing this podcast for 10 years. I know, but hey, don't worry. You can jump in at literally any episode and hear us talk about some of our favorite stuff. Caterpillars becoming butterflies. Martha Stewart flying around in a private jet full of trees. Yes, you heard me right. Trees. Neighbors becoming enemies. Just kidding. (laughs) Whatever messed up stuff we can find on Wikipedia. Our impeccable taste in everything from dogs to TV shows to bodily functions. And horses. Lots and lots of horses. Come for our horned up rants about the world. Stay for the catchy theme songs. You might not learn anything, but we're a good hang. Baby Geniuses. Every other week on MaximumFun.org. Baby Geniuses tell us something we don't know. All right, my love. What animal do you bring this week?
0: Today I'll be talking about... The Shavalski's horse.
1: I'm so excited for this.
0: Yes. And I did have to specifically write down how to pronounce that. Which, when I'm having to do that for a common name, you know we're already off to a bad start. (laughs) Buckle up, y'all. I feel like this is
1: going to be a bumpy ride.
0: So, the comes from a person's name. Okay. um, Who was Russian. Uh, So, the spelling for that, Mm -hmm. um, as you took much glee in describing to me the first time.
1: The other day, <laughs> I, I was telling Chris, I was like, you could do Schiavalski's horse? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, I want to hear you guess <laughs> what letter you think this horse's name starts with.
0: I <laughs> wasn't even close. Because <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the spelling is P-R-Z-E-W-A-L-S-K-I. I love that. Now, the scientific name is Equus Ferris Chavalsky.
1: Oh, it's it's... A subspecies, It is a is subspecies. It? Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's probably not contentious at all, I'm
0: <laughs> sure. It is also called a taki, meaning spirit in Mongolia. Wow. Yes, T-A-K-H-I.
1: Oh, what a pretty name. Yes.
0: This species was submitted by Hannah L. and Sarah Carter. Thank you both. Thank you, y'all. And I'll be getting information from the Smithsonian National Zoo,
1: Love like them. yours. Yes.
0: And also the San Diego Zoo, and a couple of other sources that I'll cite along the way. Uh, so first... It is a type of horse. As far as horses go, not too big. Actually, by some standards, would probably be considered a pony, like at a horse show. A pony! The adult size is 1.3 to 1.5 meters tall at the withers.
1: What is a wither?
0: Uh, so first, that's 4.3 to 5 feet, by the way. But at the withers means from the ground to the area above its shoulders. Okay. So that that is a, a way of measuring the height of horses in general.
1: I know every horse girl that listens to this is screaming right now. So I'm like, <laughs> what, what is a wither?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what that really means is that that does not take into the account the horse's height when their head is up.
1: Right, because the horses the horses' head can be at many different positions, right. so you're going to get some varying heights. <laughs> yeah,
0: lengthwise they are 2.2 to 2.6 meters long, or seven and a quarter to eight and a half feet, and weigh 250 to 360 kilograms, or 550 to 800 pounds.
1: Okay, so I see what you mean. This is a little on the small side for a yeah.
0: horse. Uh, whereas the largest horses are maybe double, triple that size. Oh wow! Yeah, like, big boys like the Clydesdales
1: and the Shire right. horses. Yeah, and I, okay, since I don't spend a lot of time around horses, Mm -hmm. every time I am next to a horse, it's always bigger than I think it is. Like, horses Mm -hmm. are always bigger than I think they are.
0: They're pretty big, yeah. They are small and stocky, similar in size to domestic ponies, like I mentioned.
1: I'm just loving the (laughs) idea, because I, I like, kind of know things about these, like, horses a Mm -hmm. little bit, and the idea of someone rolling up to a horse show with one of these is really (laughs) delighting me.
0: Also, the height is often measured in a unit called hands, the sister measurement to our feet. feet, (laughs) yeah. Anyway, um, now I would like to describe a little bit more about what these look like, but I'm going to be reading from an article in the Smithsonian Magazine.
1: Okay, let's hear it.
0: It reads, the holy animal of Mongolia is big-headed and stocky like a pudgy foal that overgrew in odd places. Its body is the color of a stirred cappuccino, (laughs) but the legs are dark, as if dressed in stockings. Its muzzle is white, its mane black and bristly, erect as a fresh-cut mohawk. A matching line runs like a racing stripe all the way down the horse's back. The babies are often pale gray and wooly like lambs.
1: Somebody was just really having fun with this, I feel like.
0: I really liked it, and it paints a great picture. Yeah. So that's from an article titled The Remarkable Comeback of Przewalski's Horse. <laughs> I'm going to struggle with it every time. You can do this. And that is I by Paige Williams, again, in the Smithsonian Magazine from 2016. Now, where these can be found? They were historically found on the steppes throughout Europe and Asia. Uh, steps as in S-T-E-P-P-E-S. Right,
1: right, right. We talked about this with the Saiga before. Mm-hmm. Probably some overlapping ranges with the Saiga, I bet.
0: Maybe. Today they can be found in Mongolia, China, and Kazakhstan. A steppe by the way is a grassland plain without trees except near rivers and lakes.
1: Yeah, so like think about like the great plains. Mm-hmm. Like the great plains in North America are are steppes. It's mm-hmm. very similar.
0: They belong to the taxonomic
1: family Equidae.
0: Other things in that family include donkeys and zebras.
1: Okay, so yeah, these are the horses. Mm-hmm.
0: You noted that I used a subspecies for the scientific name. That is because the domestic horse is of the same species, but of a different subspecies. The domestic horse is Equus Ferris, either Caballus or Caballus.
1: See, my my knowledge of Spanish tells me Caballus, but my knowledge of Latin tells me Caballus.
0: (laughs) It's probably that one, then, right?
1: It must be. (laughs) Yeah,
0: probably Caballus. I've got Spanish on the brain with Dueling. I know. We've been on the Dueling. I've got Spanish on the brain from. Art Mo- Our- mobile <laughs> learning app
1: <laughs> <laughs> that did not pay us to say their name <laughs> uh
0: so I'll get right into it with the first category of effectiveness. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. So the big thing about them is they are the only wild horses left in the world. Really? Yes.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Non-domesticated horses.
1: As in like have never been domesticated. Correct. So not just like a feral population Correct. of horses that used to be domesticated and yes. now are roaming free. Because we got lots of those. Yeah, we
0: do. I was going to say, a lot of the times people refer to those as wild horses but they're actually feral horses. Mm. Domesticated horses. And they're offspring living in the wild without human intervention.
1: Can I derail you briefly? Yeah. There was very, like, very recently, as in, like, within the last few weeks, a huge paper that was published, basically rewriting the timeline of horse uh, reintroduction into the Americas. Yes. Did you see about this?
0: No, not that specifically, but I did read that I don't know how recent this was, but it seemed like the the thought was horses originated from the Americas, made their way into Asia and Europe, and then came back by way of European colonizers, right? Yes.
1: So they had <laughs> been in North America, but they went extinct like 10,000 years ago. Oh, no. And then they got reintroduced by way of trade with the Spanish mm-hmm. into like Mesoamerica, But the indigenous people had their own trade networks that distributed horses up and into the Americas long before Europeans had made it. So by the time Europeans made it like to that side of the continent, uh, indigenous people in North America had already traded horses up there. Hmm. Very interesting paper. Really, really cool. Yeah. But So you say like a wild horse as in this did not have, this is not the path that this horse went right. down. Right. This
0: was not a domesticated horse that was then reintroduced into the wild or anything. Mm.
1: They just stayed wild forever. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So I guess there's some implications about that as to how they might resemble the horse ancestor.
0: They they are not an ancestor of domestic horses. Right. They're, they're more like cousins. Like sure. they, they share a, a distant relative. hmm um but yeah today they're the only living wild horses.
1: I guess what I what I meant is that like they're a horse that has evolved adapted to natural pressures rather than human selection.
0: Sort of. Their decrease in range has a lot to do with the change in the geography mm. of Europe and Asia oh, but really? also human interactions. Right. Yeah. Sure. In terms of loss of habitat. Interesting. Yeah. A thing that separates them from domestic horses is that they shed their mane and tail hair annually.
1: Do they really? Yeah. I've seen a lot of TikToks <laughs> of, of people, like, in the spring and summertime, they have to, like, groom their horses and, like, brush out their winter coat. Yeah, yeah. Because the winter coat sheds. Mm-hmm. So I guess I knew that, but I didn't know that they, like, shed their mane. and. Well, only
0: do the Chevalskis horse do, does this. Oh, so that is, okay. is something that is different from domestic horses.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Huh.
0: They also lack the kind of curl into the... The forehead part of the mane that domestic horses have. Mm. So there's kind of stops like a a mohawk, like it was described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a a zebra's do. Yeah. Zebras have that sort of like really Mm. short mane. The chromosomes are interesting.
1: This is always a wild trip.
0: I had to stop myself from digging too deep into (laughs) molecular biology. Um, It's not something that I think about very often. (laughs) <laughs> but can't relate. a quick, you know, rundown of what chromosomes are, you know, animals and plants have DNA, basically the blueprints of our bodies. Uh, they're often organized into genes and then chromosomes.
1: Yeah, the chromosomes yes. are like the packets of information.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those that have taken, you know, biology classes, you'll probably remember seeing them represented as... Two sets of, I'll, I'll call them arms,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that kind of look like bow ties.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so that's the structure of the chromosomes, but only when, they're, when the cell that they're in is about to divide, because otherwise they're more loosey-goosey in the nucleus of the cell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they have 66 chromosomes.
1: That's a lot of chromosomes. Or
0: 33 pairs, whereas domestic horses have 64. Huh. Or 32 pairs. They can breed together. and they make fertile offspring that have 65 chromosomes.
1: Okay, so this is when you get into that, like, what is a species sort of thing. Yes. Okay, (laughs) interesting.
0: Um, However, the hybrids look just like the wild horses, so the only way you would know they're a hybrid is through uh, chromosome testing.
1: Oh, really? Yes. Powerful genes, huh? Some dominant alleles going on in there. (laughs) Is, Is this something that factors into their conservation? Uh, like breeding them with, you know, domesticated horses? I,
0: I came across not totally scientific sources where people <laughs> were concerned about keeping those, those breeds pure. Okay. But I got to wonder, what is the point if you can't tell the difference?
1: I mean, there's something to be said for, like, genetic diversity. Sure. Right? And, like, wanting to introduce... Some genetic diversity, so that you don't get this like population mm-hmm. with like a genetic bottleneck, right? Yeah. So there's there's something to be said for like bringing fresh, you know, genetic mutation sure. into a population. I, I don't know, like I, this isn't a conversation I'm familiar enough yeah. to have an opinion about. So
0: it's interesting, at least. Yeah. Um, the next thing I want to talk about here is their reliance on the steppe environment prior to the last ice age over fifteen thousand years ago. Uh, steps were present from the East Coast of Asia all the way to modern day Spain and Portugal, Wow, but much of that turned into forests mm-hmm. since then by the eighteen hundreds These horses were mostly found in Mongolia, southern Russia, and Poland um, in the early nineteen hundreds they were further pushed into areas not desirable by humans, uh, so they had two things acting against them: one is you know the the natural geography changing mm-hmm. and them not being well adapted for forest environments.
1: Oh, because they're they're quite stocky and yeah,
0: hooved animals and and then humans coming along and even pushing them into into less fertile places. Mm-hmm. They were last spotted in the wild in Mongolia's Gobi Desert in the nineteen eighties.
1: Last spotted there
0: in the wild, that, not in a reservation.
1: Oh, okay, not yes. like. In, a, in an area set aside for ecological preservation. Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes. Because then they, they went extinct shortly after that. Wow. Well, in the wild, extinct. Because then, at that time, um, they had Chowalski's horses in zoos around the world. So individuals from various zoos were used to bolster the species and introduce them to reserves in Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and northern China. So that means... All living individuals today are descendants of 14 horses collected in the early 20th century.
1: Really? Yes. Wow. You want to talk about a
0: bottleneck? <laughs>
1: that is a very small sort of starting point. Yeah. Oh, that is another like big comeback though, like from from such a small little handful of individuals. You're right.
0: I unfortunately did not note how many there are today. Um, I want to say more it was, than 14. Oh yeah, a lot more than that. It's. <laughs> And the hundreds are low thousands, I okay. think. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about their digestion, which the way they digest is typical of other horses, but mm. we haven't talked about a horse before, really. Yeah, right. So they're known as what's called hindgut fermenters.
1: Oh, that sounds glamorous.
0: <laughs> and like I mentioned, horses, zebra, and donkeys are all this as well. The hindgut, which consists of the cecum and the large intestine, ferments fibrous materials. So the basic track is mouth. Stomach, small intestines, large intestines, and then out the body, right, Mm -hmm. through the colon. Uh, So in a horse, that large intestine is very large. (laughs) (laughs) Their stomach is relatively small.
1: Oh, okay. Intestines putting in a lot of work here. Yes.
0: So um, the involved microorganisms in that fermentation in Mm -hmm. the large intestine produce... Volatile fatty acids, which provides the majority of the animal's energy requirements. So some digestion is happening further up the track, mm-hmm. but the, you know, lion's share is happening in the large intestine with the I fermentation. Get,
1: we see this sort of like funky like gut fermentation happening a lot in animals that mostly eat plant matter. Mm-hmm. Like You know, this sort of low-calorie, leafy, grassy sort of diet. Right. Which I guess is what you'd expect to see of a horse.
0: Yes. I should have mentioned these horses, you know, are eating grasses and Mm -hmm. shrubs and that kind of thing.
1: I didn't expect a a carnivorous (laughs) horse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'd be too surprised at this point. (laughs) Moving on to our next category of ingenuity. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Very good. They do have a social structure. Uh, The groups often consist of a dominant male or stallion, along with several females or mares and their offspring. Uh this is often referred to as a harem. So other males are pushed out once they reach reproductive age and live in bachelor herds. So they they either go off to form their own herds or they challenge an existing dominant male. So they'll they'll challenge a dominant male for the role. Uh they also do uh grooming or Aww. and scritches uh, <laughs> basically um, yes. of each other.
1: Scritches. Like they're scritching each other? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. With what are they scritching each other? Uh,
0: I don't know for sure, but I assume their mouths. I guess it
1: would have to be, <laughs> yeah.
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> no hands. For those maybe unfamiliar with horses, they have pretty versatile lips.
1: That's true. That's true. They do. They have yeah. surprising uh, mouth dexterity. Yeah.
0: Having spent some time on a farm as a child, one of the earliest lessons I remember being told... Is that when you hand-feed a horse something like an apple, is to keep all your fingers together. (laughs) 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 So as to lessen the likelihood of you getting bit. (laughs) Yeah, true,
1: true, true. Uh, Well, I learned not to stand in their blind spots. Yes. Which are directly in front of them, right? Isn't it directly in front of them as a blind spot?
0: Well... Oh, I'm not sure about that. I thought what you were referring to was don't walk behind them. Yeah, don't
1: walk behind them. They do not like that.
0: They, yeah, so they can't see that well, and they get startled, and then they will kick backwards, and mm-hmm. you could die from that. You will <laughs> be having a bad time. You will at least be broken. and <laughs> <laughs> You'll be a broken person. <laughs> Anywho, they know how to protect what's important. So in their native range, the predator they worry about the most are wolves.
1: Interesting, you got, like, herd tactics versus mm-hmm. pack tactics. <laughs> so n- neither one of them has a number advantage.
0: <laughs> so when threatened by a predator, like wolves, the mares, or the females, will form a circle around the young. with <gasps> the stallions outside that circle for intimidation and offense.
1: Really? Yes. Wow. What a little battalion they've got going on. That's really interesting. This
0: kind of sounded like what you were describing um, with the muskox, right?
1: With the muskox, it's more like the males form the circle, the protective circle around. You know, the the females and the young Mm -hmm. will be in the middle and the males will, it's it's less of like a patrolling around the edge sort of thing. Okay. But like still a similar thing where they're like protecting the more vulnerable members of the herd.
0: Sure, sure. And also at night, they have one or more night lookouts while the rest sleep.
1: Interesting.
0: Um, also in a protective kind of fashion, in high winds, they'll turn their back to the wind and tuck their tails between their legs, uh, protecting their eyes, nostrils, and their reproductive bits.
1: I guess that, you know, in a in a very, very flat, high elevation place, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of wind. Yeah, not,
0: not a lot blocking it, right? No. Uh, they can find water by digging in the ground with their hooves.
1: That's clever. Mm-hmm. It's a very arid place. Yeah. Uh,
0: and another thing about the that kind of digestion, it requires a good bit of water. Mm.
1: Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Clever horses. Yeah. Uh,
0: however, some mares leave the herd to give birth, which presents a quite a vulnerable opportunity for predators to exploit.
1: True. That's when you need to be... <laughs> that is the one time you most need to be with your herd. <laughs> right. Like, why would you pick your most vulnerable time?
0: Another thing they'll do is they'll uh, mark their territory with uh, poop markers. Piles of poop called stud piles.
1: Stud piles. <laughs> 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 nah, babe, this is just my stud pile. <laughs> that's nasty this is such dude behavior yeah, a little bit huh? <laughs> it's definitely
0: a patriarchy kind of organization here Ugh, uh, gross and then finally they do have auditory communication so things like neighs and snorts and grunting and that kind of thing
1: the cute sounds sure <laughs> this all reminded me of that animated movie spirit the stallion of the cimarron cimarron you remember that movie no Matt Damon was a horse. What? Yeah. Oh, boy.
0: Our final category of aesthetics. I'm giving a 9 out of 10.
1: Yeah, for sure. This they're is a good one. Very
0: cute. And they're very pony or donkey-esque.
1: I do. I am getting donkey from them.
0: And this is a personal thing, but I I took a point off because around horses and their relatives, I feel pretty guarded. What? There's something about them that keeps me on my toes. What
1: does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> You're like I don't trust them.
0: <laughs> what are they plotting way up there?
1: <laughs> What's the beef? That did one like did one attack you as a child? I got attacked by my animal, uh-huh. <laughs> and I and I didn't. I didn't uh, foster a grudge. Did you get attacked by a horse?
0: No, I'm still here, aren't I? <laughs>
1: Do you think you could fight a horse? No. I don't. <laughs> I, I, I've never seen you deduct points from an animal for just not liking the cut of their jib. <laughs> just something's off. <laughs> I didn't know you had some sort of long-standing secret beef with horses. I don't
0: know. It's some sort of uncanny valley but like not at the human level at the mammal level
1: i, have, I cannot go on this journey with you i'm sorry <laughs>
0: you can cut all this out if you want no, but no I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving this and you have
1: to stand in your <laughs>
0: and also when you kind of look at the um the anatomy of their feet and legs yeah, and, oh that's and, not good and how they correspond to human anatomy.
1: none of that's good it's very odd none of that is good at all they're basically standing on their toes tips yeah it's like ballerina feet how they they're like toe tips are like pointed down directly below them but they're just standing on one toe mm-hmm. yeah i've seen some sort of like artist's renditions of like if our feet were like yeah. horses feet and it's it's terrible <laughs> it's really bad yeah <laughs>
0: Their teeth are also very a little strange when they when they do like a I don't know a, a nay I suppose or anything where they're like fully opening their mouth it does and,
1: expose a lot of that. Yeah. It's not my favorite. It's
0: maybe an arrangement of teeth that you're not expecting or familiar with. There is there
1: is this expression that they do sometimes it's called the flame in response. Have you seen this? Yeah. So the flame in response is something that they do when they're trying to get a real good whiff. Of, like, if they smell something that they haven't smelled before and they're, like, curious about it and they want to get, like, a really deep smell, they do this sort of, like, thing with their face where they curl their lips back. You know what I'm talking about?
0: Is is this the same thing with checking for... uh, Reproductive
1: sort of uh, viability? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd imagine that's probably one, like, situation they would do this in. But they'll also do that if they just smell something that's, like, unusual and they're trying to, like, sniff it out. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly a face that they make. yeah. I think it's funny.
0: <laughs>
1: but apparently it haunts you deeply.
0: <laughs> it's like the mammal I feel least related to. I don't know.
1: <laughs> okay, I guess that makes sense. Which is odd
0: considering we've talked about echidnas and platypuses. Right, like, <laughs> but, whatever.
1: but is it, it, maybe, do you think it's maybe to do with, like, the sideways facing eyes? Do you think that's getting you? I don't like, know. The fact that, so they have, like, the horizontal pupils and their eyes are just, like, set on the sides of their heads. Interesting. I didn't expect you to feel that way about horses i thought everybody just like i thought that was like a built-in human instinct to just find horses like intrinsically beautiful and whimsical well
0: that's your first thought and then you know your <laughs> your farm family comes along like hey this thing it will bite you and it will kick you and you will not have a good time
1: this thing has so many ways to kill you built into its body <laughs> do not this thing could take you out <laughs> if you look at it wrong it's ready i guess maybe you just have a, a healthy uh, respectful fear of sure. That's true. I don't have the perspective. Mm-hmm. Just, I've ridden horses. I've been on horses. I mean, I
0: am far from, you know, having the experience of someone taking care of their own horses and living true. with horses, but, you know.
1: Horse adjacent. Yeah. Interesting.
0: So, perhaps not surprising. Their conservation status is endangered, mm-hmm. um, like we mentioned. Mostly in part due to loss of habitat.
1: Mm-hmm. I read something about one of them being cloned. Did you see that?
0: Nope. I did not.
1: One of them got cloned, I'm pretty sure, at some point.
0: Would make sense though.
1: Copy paste. Yeah. Make a new one. Which I think kind of ties into the de extinction thing we talked about on the Megalodon and Thylacine episode. Like cloning them to as like a reproduct or as like a conservation strategy. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, right now it seems like their, you know, population in zoos and also the reserves are such that where they, they just keep up the good work and you know they'll still be with us. Keep it up. Yeah.
1: They get a little gold star mm-hmm. that says Good job, horses. Mm -hmm. And good job, Christian. Oh, thanks. That was great. Thank you so much. And thank you, dear listener, for listening and spending this time with us today. We really appreciate you, and we're so glad that you are here. Uh, if you'd like what you heard today, we would love it if you left a kind review for us on your favorite podcast app. You could also come hang out with us. We're on social media. So Facebook, Instagram, uh, we have a great Discord server. Everybody's super nice and fun on there. You know, all the usuals. links to everything will be in the episode description. So you can come check us out. Uh, We would like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on the network alongside their lineup of spectacular shows, uh, like the ones that you heard promos for earlier in the episode. So if you want to learn more about the network and their shows, and how you can be a part of supporting our show and helping us make the show happen every week, you can head over to MaximumFun.org. And finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our wonderful theme music. Maybe we can see if we can remix some of those whinnies, like some 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 good horse sounds <laughs> into the into the track. I feel like musically there are so few contexts that you can get a horse whinny to just like sound good. Yeah. It's so atonal, you know.
0: I think it's often used in mixing audio for monster sounds and movies and things. I think <laughs> Lord of the Rings used a good bit of horse sounds.
1: Yeah, for the actual horses.
0: Well, in addition. <laughs> to the horses
1: yeah christian they used horse sounds for the horses
0: (laughs) they dubbed over the horse with a different
1: horse with a better cooler horse
0: (laughs) they used a red-tailed horse for that (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's the end of the show bye